0: You are listening to The Secret Series from Jubilee Church. This series follows members as they tell their stories and reveal the secrets that so few are willing to share in order to demonstrate the impact God has had on their lives. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. I grew up in Columbia, Missouri with my parents and my two brothers and I came from a Christian home. And when I was 14 in my freshman year, uh, or right before my freshman year of high school, we moved from Columbia to Kansas City, Kansas. And it was for my dad's job. Um, He had traveled Monday through Thursday. Uh, He'd be gone, and then um, he'd come back. And so he got an office-based job, so we moved there. And I was really excited to start my freshman year there Um, a few months into our our time in Kansas City, um, in about three days my it it came out that my parents were going to get a divorce and um, I remember uh, well the first thing that happened was that we the first night we saw um, my dad sleeping on the sofa and the next day my mom um, as we were getting ready to leave for school she came out and she um, said that we were going to have a family meeting that evening so we came home and we had a family meeting and my dad came home and he rang the doorbell and we had a family meeting and our parents sat us down and, and gave us lots of different details but basically had told us that they were going to be getting a divorce and I I remember just being completely just devastated. I as a kid, I used to sit around with my my friends and say, um, you know, we'd play stupid games and say, uh, whose parents would, you know, who, if someone's parents were gonna get divorced, who, whose would that be? And my parents were always the ones that were never gonna uh, have that happen. So, um, in a few short months, my, my dad moved back to Columbia with my older brother, and my mom had been working, um, or had been a stay-at-home mom, so she, hadn't worked in a very long time so she ended up going back to school for two years um, to get a degree in radiology and then it just left my brother, my younger brother and I to be at home and um, it it was just an extremely difficult time I felt like I had been losing control of everything and as I started to feel like I was losing control I I began to have eating disorders to try to control things, and I got into a really uh, dark place of... um, I I suffered from anorexia, but then I would binge eat and throw up, um, or I would also uh, just drink bottles of laxatives if I ever ate anything, and that carried on. It was a struggle that I had all through high school. Um, And despite that, I kind of carried on a normal life as a normal high school student um, but just slowly started getting into things that I probably shouldn't have been. So my sophomore year of high school I had been on a softball team at our our school and our softball field was not um, at our school but it was like a five or ten minute drive from our school and on the way to one of our games my best friend Elena who was really one of the girls that I only had I had friends, but I really had connected with her. She was my best friend, and um, she was driving on a road with uh, four other girls, and they got into a head-on collision. Um, and her and two of the other girls in the car died, um, and the other two girls were critically injured. Um, and it was just a really... At that point in my life, I had already been... Struggling with just not having a family or my family being just ripped apart and With a divorce a year before and this was a turning point for me. I really I, I Didn't know how to cope with uh, the stuff that was going on and I chose to um, I Kind of turn away from my friendship group. I actually got into a really bad crowd of friends and um I began um, drinking quite heavily and using drugs i over from the time where my friends died in the first car accident um, over the next eight months, um, I had three separate friends who died in car accidents and I began to date a guy who was selling cocaine and using drugs, so I began using cocaine and drinking really heavily i was in a, a lot of heartache and pain, but I didn't really know how to, to deal with that, and so just uh, was using alcohol and drugs to kind of numb the pain. I gave myself to doing drugs and using alcohol and eating disorders just out of a place of just real hurt and pain. I actually was trying to I didn't want to deal with my feelings and the things that were going on inside of me. I think I had a lot of turmoil inside of just pain, resentment for just maybe some things that had happened, um, anger, and my way of coping with that. And even with friendships, I would walk away from people because I didn't want to deal with uh, the pain that would associate with, you know, the reminder of, you know, the friends that I had during that time or my parents being together so I I began to use those things as a way to just numb the pain and as a way to cope with life without having to deal with the things that were going on inside me. I had uh, also gone to Mexico for a trip and um, I had, I had, I used to hide different kind of bottles of laxatives and things that I took. and. Uh, I had about twenty bottles that i hadn't i hadn 't thrown away, but i 'd put them in a bag to throw away and I forgot and I came home from that trip and my mom had found those those bottles and she was aware that stuff was going on and she tried to get me help, but I just really wasn 't in a place that I wanted to be helped um, and our relationship my relationship with my mom had really hit um, a peak of me just being uh, absolutely terrible towards her and uh, was not respecting her in any way, um, so she, she actually asked me to move out at that point, and she didn't feel like I was setting a good example for my brother, and, uh, I wasn't listening to her at all in any way, so I ended up moving out of the house with her, and I moved in with my, my dad, who moved back, uh, to Kansas City to just be there with me, but he had gone back to taking that job where he was working, um, and traveling on the road. So throughout my junior year of high school I really was living on my own a lot of the time. I was getting very de- depressed and down. I was struggling with uh, just just life in general and not really knowing what to do. Uh, my senior year of high school I got a phone call from my mom and at that point she had uh, her and our relationship had not been in a very good place. She had moved um, had moved about thirty minutes away with my younger brother um, so that she for work and she was plugged into a church there and also my brother had just gotten into a really good high school there and so I had just kind of not been in much contact with her and I got a phone call from her in February, and through tears, she told me that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And she was about ready to start treatment for her cancer. And I remember hanging up the phone with her and just in anger saying to God, "Um, I can't take anymore, you know. And um, from that point on, I just, I began to go visit my mom um, occasionally as she was going through her treatment. And she was a Christian and she was experiencing Uh, just her cancer treatment, but she was also just really facing and looking at life and death situations, and she began talking to me about um, just God and how God was uh, just carrying her through that situation and how he was her peace and her joy, and um, I really was aware that I just was so unhappy in my life, and I didn't know how I had started off my freshman year of high school being a straight-A student, and Involved in everything, and here I was in my senior year, and i couldn't go to school, and I was about ready to have to redo my senior year and um, I just felt real unhappiness and so through I'd, through the end of my senior year, um, my mom carried on her cancer treatment i uh, I was told by my counselors that at school um, my principal that I basically, they gave me a plan that if I didn't do every single thing on the plan, that I would be uh, redoing my senior year of high school. So I managed to do all those things, and I just barely graduated. But on the day of my graduation, I just remember standing up and feeling like I kind of slithered out the door rather than it being a proud day. And I, my mom had invited me to go to a church camp um, with her at, at the in the end of May, after I had graduated, and I really didn't want to go. Um, I didn't feel like I was worthy to kind of be in that kind of environment, but she had asked me if I would just go and stay in the room with her. I didn't have to go to any meetings, so I said I'd go. And I ended up going to that meeting, and the first meeting that I went to, I decided to go to the first meeting and just check it out and see how, how it was. And I sat in the back, and they sang some songs, and then they... Uh, invited a guest speaker to come up to the front, and as I was sitting there, I ended up seeing um, a guy who I had grown up across the street from in Columbia, who actually was from England uh, and had moved back to England. So, really, wasn't expecting to see him. And he stood up and he shared just about his life and what God had done in his life. And it was his story was so parallel to mine. I just felt that God. Um, I, I just felt God was just completely drawing me in. And I I responded to just give my life to God that day. And um, it was a night and day difference. One day I, I was smoking, drinking, just completely unhappy, full of just anger and hurt and bitterness. And uh, the next day I had been completely set free. God had healed me from eating disorders. He had healed me from... Uh, just heavy drinking and smoking, and just all the the kind of the initial things that you could see that were wrong with me. But uh, that started just a journey of God, just changing uh, my heart completely, and for the first time in a really long time that I felt joy, and I uh, I felt like there was hope for life, and that my life wasn't going to look the way that I thought it was probably gonna end up looking but I had a hope that was uh, much greater than than my circumstances around me and uh, I felt peace and I hadn't felt that in a very long time and I moved away from my my dad's house and moved in with my mom I cut off ties with just friendships bad friendships that weren't healthy for me and I broke up with my boyfriend of two years uh, and I moved to Uh, my mom's house and joined a church there Um, and I spent the next or that summer was just extremely difficult as I started making choices to just choose to live life a different way Uh, there was amazing things about you know just knowing God's peace and how he gave me strength Um, but just being on my own and not having friendships and uh, also just living with you know a lot of I think I had a lot of shame um, for the past that the things that I had done um, I still probably hadn't been really honest with people about just some of the secrets that I kept as far as just eating disorders and using drugs and just drinking really heavily and uh, so I began to just start to open up to people and just share in a healthy way when I reflect back on just my life and the things that um, I've been through. I just really feel like God has uh, just completely restored my life. That He's uh, completely uh, changed me from the inside out. That I I live for um, with just such a hope and a joy in in Him. That I have life in Him now. That the things that I've been through uh, and and experienced that they aren't what shapes me any anymore. That I am completely just redeemed and set free because of what he's done for me.
1: I want to first welcome Washington and the Lake location. It's great to be one church together. And now I want to invite Adrian. Would you come on up? So how this works is I've, I've asked uh, each of those who will be sharing their secret of, to, hey, give me a verse, give me a section of scripture that's really meant a lot to you in this season, and uh, and then I'm going to preach from that section of verses. So, Adrian's going to come and, and read uh, a section of scripture that's meant a lot to her, and then I'll come and share a few words.
0: I'm going to be reading from Psalms 139, 1 through 18. There's a black Bible in front of you if you don't have one under the chair, and I'll be reading from page 521. Again, that's Psalms 139, 1 through 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shiloh, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you.
1: That psalm is nice, um, but it's not... As nice as it sounds initially, and, and what I mean by that is well i 'll say it this way throughout Adrian's story, um man, I was thinking a lot about her mom. I was thinking about what her mom might be going through, and just you know here she has this teenage daughter who's who's running and doing all these things and and her mom's like, man, if she would only just listen to me and i'm I'm here for her good, and I want to help her and and um you know. Adrian's like, I'm a mom. I don't care what you know. I, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide. I'm going to run. I'm going to do all these different kinds of things. And, you know, and, and I begin, I'm um, not quite a, a parent of a, of a teenager. And I, I think about those teenage years. And and I know what I was like as a teenager. And I'm sure you know what you remember what you were like as a teenager. Or perhaps you are a teenager. Or, or you maybe you're the parent of a teenager. Because I talk to a lot of teenage parents. And they're like, man, you got to do something about my teenager. you got to, you know, like, man, I I tell them to do stuff, and I'm only telling them for their good, but they keep running away, running away, and what I I don't say that I want to say is, have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you, do you know who you are? Because that's you. That's all of us. The reality is, uh, what Adrian experienced and what David talks about in this psalm is there's this knowledge of God, there's this understanding of God, and when I begin, my heart connects with who God is, I don't like it, and, and I'll explain that. There are two um, major categories that theologians will put the nature of character in God in. Uh, the first category is called the communicable attributes of God. If you're in medicine, the communicable means that you could, it's a disease that you can catch. A communicable disease is a disease that you can catch. And so the attributes of God that are communicable are the ones that we can experience and that we can have. And so God is a God of love and God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy and uh, he does good things. And, And this, to be honest with you, this is the God that we would like We'd like him to stay in that box, but there are other, there's another category of attributes of God, and they're called the incommunicable attributes of God. And there's three big ones they're the omni attributes. It's that God is omniscient, uh, that he knows everything, he is omnipotent, he is all powerful, uh, and he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. And these incommunicable attributes of God's, these are the part of God that we don't like. We don't like the omni-God. We like, uh, we, we like the God who's a God of grace, God of mercy. But the God who knows everything, the God who has power over everything, uh, the God who is everywhere, we, we don't like that God and like Adrian, we want to run. And here's what I'm talking about. You can see the omni in the in the verse one through six. We see that we see his omniscience. We see that his um, knowledge surrounds us. Verse four says, "Even before uh, I know what I'm going to do, you you do it." God is all. Uh, he knows everything. And we have a very uh, two dimensional view of what time is. So if you can imagine uh, time coming at us like this pen, we can just see. Uh, that round part, and as we begin to experience time, we can see time as it passes us. Oh, there's time. But we can only see the front, we can only experience that front edge. We see it in a very two-dimensional view. But God sees time like this. Oh, that's interesting. He sees the past, he sees the middle, and he sees the end. He sees, he's not in time. God doesn't foresee the future. So God knowing the future isn't that he's in the present. He's not trapped in the present with us. He, he, he's outside of time and he knows it all, which means, which means he knows more about you than you know about you. And we hate it. At verse seven through 12 talks about how his presence surround us. It says, if I send to the heavens, you are there. And if I go down to Sheol, means under the ground, uh, in utter darkness, you're there. If I take wings of the morning, that's, you know, where the morning where the sun comes up, if I Uh, So as far as east possible, so where the sun comes up, if I run as far as east possible, you're there. Or if it says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now remember, uh, he's in Israel when he says this. So the sea, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. And so when he looks into the horizon, it says, if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, the uttermost part, uttermost west, you are there. So if I go as far as west as possible, you're there. If I go as far as east as possible, if I go up, I go down, you're there, you're here, you're there, you're everywhere. You're everywhere, I declare. Um, I listen to a lot of Dr. Seuss. And so when Dave says, when David says, where should I flee from your presence, that word for presence, every time you see this in the Old Testament, that word for presence, it means face. Everywhere I go, I see his face. You see, this is really helpful for us in understanding uh, who God is, because sometimes I think we, think we think God fills the earth like a gas. So if, you, if I was to take a canister of gas, and I was to open up and release, a gas would fill this room. And you say, yeah, the, the gas is everywhere. It fills the room. But what, what actually is happening is the molecules are separating, and so they're stretching out over here, and they're stretching out over here. The, God being everywhere isn't that he stretched out across the universe. God being everywhere is that his face is everywhere. All of him is everywhere at once, which is why the the psalmist begins to say, man, this is too wonderful for me. I I can't, my my mind is exploding. Verse 13 through 18 talks about um, his power. He's omnipotent. It says, verse 13 says, for you formed me in my inward parts. You made my soul. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You made my body. Both uh, the body and soul are created by God, but they're not just created by God. It says that you sustained my life. So you, you've created me, you sustain me, but it doesn't just say that. It says that you've ordained my days. Verse 16, that he has set our days apart. It says they are written in his book, every one of them, the days that were for, formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So it says from beginning to end, from, the, from conception till the day I die, uh, you, you created me and you sustain me all through that. But it isn't just that you sustained me all through that. That is every moment of my life you have ordained. There is a purpose attached to every second of your life, and that starts in conception through adolescence, through your middle ages, through retirement, your oldest age, were sustained. They were created, they were sustained, and they were ordained by God. So even at the very end of your life, when you think, well, what what good am I? What am I even here for? Those days are, are ordained by God. There's a plan, there's a reason. So what David is saying, I don't know if you're picking up on this, is that from conception to the day you die... God is in charge. And we hate that. We feel smothered by that. I mean, that's why those who take the Bible seriously will say things like both abortion and act of euthanasia are wrong because that is, there is, that is God's place that he has created this life He sustains this life and he has ordained every second. And at the beginning of our life and at the end of our life, our lives are pretty fragile and at times inconvenient. And there's something that we want to do, but we shouldn't. He says, even so for me, even in my mother's womb, he was creating, sustaining, ordaining me. Just as he does right now at age 39. And when I'm old and gray-er. The, those moments are ordained. They are under the shadow of his presence. We are surrounded by his knowledge. We are surrounded by his presence. We are surrounded by his Now, David writes this not as a theologian, uh, trying to describe the doctrine of who God is, although he does that, but what he's really, he's a poet who's trying to communicate how his heart connects with who God is, how his heart responds to who God is. And when he first grappled who God is, like Adrian and like really all of us, he felt smothered by it. He felt threatened by it. Verse 6, such such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's beyond me. I don't get it. Um, It it causes my circuits to blow, and I'd rather just not think about it. I'd rather just avoid it. What do you mean a God that doesn't? Nah, just forget about that. Verse 5 describes it more. It says, you hem me in. I'm I'm hemmed in. It's like a blanket over me. It's like I'm, I'm... like a straitjacket, like I'm just, I can't do anything, there's no freedom, so we want to run, just like Adrian and David did, and that's what he says in verse 7, he says, where can I go, where can I flee, flee, that, that word is just outright rebellion, it's I want out of here, it's the same Hebrew word that was used by Jonah in 1.3, um, uh, Jonah was asked by God to go to Nineveh, to go this way, and he says, I'm going to go that way, verse uh, Jonah one three. Jonah, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When God came in with His Omni self, Jonah was like, "I want to flee." When, when God came, when the Omni God came to David, David was like, "I want to flee." Adrian said, "I." wanted to flee. I want to get away from this God. Now, what's interesting is that Jonah and David, uh, they lived in cultures where, you know, they knew that their life was predominantly going to be prescribed by whatever tribe they were a part of, or more specifically, whatever family they were a part of. That's the culture that they lived in. Uh, And they couldn't stand the omni-God. How much more us in our culture do we have a big problem with the Omnigod? Let me tell you what culture we live in. We live in a culture where we've taken democratic uh, self-determination, this idea that we should be able to choose our own government, uh, that we should be able to choose our own lives. We've taken really what what I would say is a really good idea, maybe even a great idea, and we've elevated it to an ultimate spiritual reality, the very meaning of our life. That is, unless I choose, unless I determine, unless I am the master of my own fate, unless I get to do what I want to do, then life is meaningless. It is the primary value. And anything that would threaten our independence, anything that would threaten my ability to choose what I want to do when I want to do it, we think life is meaningness. Now, if that is true of us, and it is, then the Omnigod who's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, the God of the Bible is an absolute nightmare to you and I. It was a nightmare to David. So we run. We want to escape this ever-present God. We don't want to be around this all-knowing God. We don't want to believe he exists. Scott Peck was a, a psych, he's, uh, moved on now, but he was a psychiatrist, uh, kind of like in the genre of a Stephen Covey, you know, kind of really kind of helping us with life. And, uh, in a therapy session, he was, um, you can read about this in his book, uh, Born to Lie. And he, Uh, he was talking to this woman named Charlene who was experiencing some, it wasn't her real name, of course, but he's talking to this name, Charlene, who's experiencing a meaningless. And from some uh, previous conversations, he remembered that she had said that church was important to her at one time. So she said, okay, he asked this, he asked Charlene, how has Christianity, uh, what does Christianity say about the meaning of life? And she snarled back at him, I'm not a Christian anymore. I only believe in love. And he says, well, can't Christianity help you at all? I mean, there's gotta be something about that. What does Christianity say about the purpose of life? And she looked at him, kind of rolled her eyes back in her head and with a very monotone voice says, we exist for the glory of God. And Peck says, well, how does that help you? And she exploded. I cannot live that way. I will not live that way. There's no room for me in that life. That would be my death. I want to live for me. I want to live for myself. Jonah, David, Charlene, Adrian, me, you. We find the omni-god suffocating and threatening. So we run, but we can't get away. Verse seven through nine, he goes, I can't, where can I go to flee from your presence? This is really getting old. Because if I go over here, you're there. If I go over there, you're there. If I go up here, you're there. If you go down here, you're there. You're, you're everywhere. I cannot get away from your presence. And then oh, there's something that begins to shift in him as he begins to, to legitimately get away from God's presence. In verse 10, it says, even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand should hold me. And so he says, okay, I wanna be free, I wanna do my own thing, I wanna live for myself, and yet everywhere I go, you're there, and if everywhere I go, but I notice, though, that your right hand, it guides me. And I notice that when I start to fall, your hand catches me. And he, he begins to play out this thing in his mind that I think we all play out, which is, I can't be with this God, but I can't be without this God. I hate that he knows everything. I hate that he's all powerful. I hate um, that, you know, that he's, he's everywhere and he's full of knowledge. And I hate that, but yet I like that he catches me when I fall. I like that he leads me and guides me. And he begins to think about that. And as he begins to think about the goodness of God, it moves from being a threat and despair uh, to kind of ambivalence to really transforming joy. It happened to Adrian. It happened to David. I hope it happens to you. This is what happened to David, verse 11 through 12. If, if I say, surely the darkness shall, come, uh, shall cover me and the light about me, night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So darkness, uh, when it's described in the Bible, always means suffering, danger, terror, death. And so when you get plunged into darkness, you get plunged into terror, you get plunged into pain, you get plunged into death. And then David says, what happens if I get plunged into death and I have a God who won't let go of me? that's helpful. Maybe he's not so bad after all. Maybe he's not a threat. Maybe he's a savior. Then verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. Precious has to do with diamonds and jewels and gold. And so what was once a threat to my life, now it's the very thing that makes my life rich, he says. And then verse 18, as he gets deeper into his journey with the wonder of who God is, he gets even more excited about the presence of God. And And the Jewish, um, you know, poetry experts will say, this is where it climaxes. finally, he says, I awake and I'm still with you. Now, this has confused a lot of people because this is supposed to be the climax. I mean, he goes like, he goes all like, you know, you knit me in my womb and wonderfully made. And, you know, all this amazing things about his life. And it's like precious. It's jewels. It's awesome. It's amazing. And intricately woven. And then he says, oh, yeah, when I get out of bed, you're still there. That's the climax. Really? That when I get out of bed, you're still there? Except that he's not saying when you get out of bed. He's saying when he says when I wake up, he's saying he's talking about when he dies. When that even in death... God comes to him, that if you have a God that's impossible to lose, no matter where you run, no matter where you go, you cannot lose this God. He is, handing, he is holding my hand so tight. He's following me so close that even if I die, he's going to be with me. This reminds me of Mark 5. In Mark 5, Jesus comes to this little girl. She's 12 years old, and he sits by her bed. And this little girl, who's 12 years old, is dead. She is in utter darkness. She is in Sheol. And he sits by this little girl and he takes her by the hand. And he holds this little girl's hand and he says, Talith kum. Talith means little girl. Kum means get up, arise. It's the kind of thing that you would say to a little girl um, when you're waking her up on a Sunday morning. honey, Sweetheart, it's time to get up. And so Jesus sits by this dead girl's body, grabs her by the hand, and says, honey, it's time to get up. And in that moment, he reaches through death, and he grabs her, and she comes alive. And this is what the Omni-God does for us is that even though we plunge into other darkness, it's nothing more than a good night's sleep. That he is with you, that he is there to guide you, and he is there to catch you when you fall. How do you connect with this God? How is this made possible for us? Well, here's the amazing thing about God's presence that's everywhere. That if we were to connect with the true magnificent presence of God on our own merit, it would be utterly terrifying. When you read through the Old Testament, um, you you begin to read things about like how, you know, Mount Sinai, you know, that was not to be touched. And it was where God's presence were. And and Moses would say things like, God, I want to see your presence. And God's like, you cannot see my presence. It would be too much for you. It would kill you. And even David, David can remember this, the one who wrote this psalm. In Chronicles, uh, there's a time where they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ark of the Covenant had, that's where God's presence was in that period uh, in history. He was in this Ark of the Covenant and uh, the donkey or whatever, was the oxen that was carrying it, 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 the the cart fell and he reached over to grab it and he was killed instantly. That just touching God's presence killed him instantly. Revelation 6:16 6, says talks about people who go before the presence of God on their own merit and they're screaming out, "Let rocks fall on us, let the mountains fall on us." Let me tell you something, it is a bad day. It is a very very bad day if you would rather have large rocks and mountains crush your skull than to stand in the presence of God. You see, there's a a sinister way that we want to get away from God's presence, and it is that we want our independence, and that's sin. But there's actually a legitimate thing that keeps us from God's presence, and that is he is holy and we are not. And if we come into contact with him, how is that going to play out for us? This is how it plays out for us. This is how it played out for Adrian. This is how it plays out for you and I, and that is that Jesus stands in our place. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Psalm 22 is a psalm that talks about Jesus on the cross, and uh, it's about the presence of God, but it's not about his closeness. It's about his distance. So Jesus on the cross, verse 1, why are you so far from me, Lord? Verse 11, be not far from me, Verse 18, Jesus says, They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, are far from me. David cannot lose the presence of God because Jesus on the cross couldn't find the presence of God. Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. David knew that God had him by the hand because on the cross the Father let go of the hand of Jesus you and I were intricately woven in our mother's room, but on the cross, Jesus was torn apart. How can you and I experience the presence of God? It's because Jesus got what we deserve. You see, all if you want to flee from God, judgment is that God gives you exactly what you want, which is you are as far as away from him as you could possibly be in that place is is called hell. God doesn't so much send people to hell as much as he lets people go where they really want to be, which is utter independence from the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-present God. And he's running after you like a spoiled teenager wants to run out in the middle of the street and his hand is there to catch you. And he goes to the cross and he is torn in two. He is plunged in the darkness so that you and I can walk in the light. Jesus was crucified in the midday in the sun. And when when he died, the the noonday became dark. Showing us that even in our darkest day, it's like the noonday because he took our place. He took our place and we take his place how can, you exp- how can the presence of God move from a threat to a transforming joy? So you receive him. You receive him. Say, Jesus, I receive what you've done for me. You hear him coming to you. Maybe he's doing this right now. Maybe, Maybe like the little girl, Jesus has come to you this morning and he's tapped you on the shoulder and he says to you, child, it's time to wake up. Maybe you've been living in darkness. Maybe you've been running. Maybe you've been fleeing. I just want you to see through the story of Adrian, through the testimony of scripture, that what you think is a threat is the most amazing truth. It will be the most amazing thing if you're willing to humble yourself and receive him today.